Will y'all pray with me? God's story. May the words of my mouth and the meditations on all of our hearts be pleasing to you. Lord God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, my name is Caleb Smith. I'm the church planting fellow here at Urban Village Church, and thank you for, uh, for being here. So, I don't know about you, and I don't want to make any assumptions, but in the moderate mainline Methodist church that I grew up in, that's a lot of ends, so keep up. Uh, the church that I grew up in, it was kind of taboo to talk about the devil or Satan. And as I reflect back on why that was, I think it was just kind of assumed that it was in bad taste. And I think the underlying kind of implicit reason was that it, there was this thought that like talking about Satan or the devil um, was kind of like, kind of reflected the belief of like simple-minded believers. It conjured up images of the fantasies of empathy uh, and that maybe things that like more mature, rational, intellectual adults should have grown out of, right? Wrong. Um, if Harry Potter, Christian mentioned Harry Potter last week's sermon, so I felt like it was necessary to mention Harry Potter this week. If Harry Potter taught us anything, it's that uh, fear of the name only increases fear of the thing itself. The symbolism of evil throughout scripture can be problematic. It has been problematic before, but at the same time, the symbolism of evil throughout scripture can provide a resource for us to name evil and evil forces in the world so as to better, maybe not fully understand, but to better comprehend the forces that seek to upset our managed and neatly packaged beautiful lives. In today's passage, evil looks like a terrifying, ferocious dragon or serpent. Throughout the book, Revelation personifies evil, demonstrating, I think, throughout the whole book, it demonstrates how the various manifestations of Satan's powers are pretty complex. They're institutional, they're social, and at times they are also very, very deeply personal. The beast in today's story is a concrete embodiment of evil. It is evil in the flesh. Well, it's actually evil in scales, but you get the idea, right? So what are the characteristics of this evil, this, this dragon that's battling it out in heaven? I think there's two characteristics that I read from this anyway. One, this, this dragon is antagonistic. It's got its dukes up. It's ready to fight. It, it seeks to control, to conquer, to, to overpower, to master, and to manipulate. We don't know exactly what this war is about in heaven between Michael and this demon, but we know that this demon is ready to fight. Fists are up. And second, this devil, demon, serpent, dragon thing is deceptive. That word, the deceiver of the whole world, is an explicit connection, makes an explicit connection to that ancient serpent, that one in the Garden of Eden. Do y'all remember the story? Do you like some head nods? Waking up? Okay, cool, yeah. So if you remember all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, God plants this beautiful garden and plants Adam and Eve into the garden and says, you can have anything you want, but stay clear of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what do they do? They go and they're like, let's go check out this tree. And that serpent, remember that, that little tricky, slithery snake comes up to them and it tricks them. It tricks them into believing a non-truth. The snake confabulates their memory. Say this word with me. 
Confabulate. Confabulate. It's a beautiful word. It's newish to me. In psychiatry, confabulation, or the verb to confabulate, is a disturbance of memory. It's defined as the production of fabricated, distorted, or misinterpreted memories about oneself or the world without the conscious intention to deceive. The snake, that ancient snake from way back when, as well as this devil, demon, Satan thing in heaven, conflates or confabulates a fact in the garden. And as a result, Adam and Eve now begin to believe a new story about themselves, about one another, and ultimately about their relationship with God. Here at UBC, a lot of people like to talk about Brene Brown, so I've been doing some research on Brene. Everyone like, something on there? Okay, anyway. So Brene Brown, at some point, talks about uh, the difference between fact and story. I find this pretty helpful. She says that a fact is a measurable, objective, uh, objective undeniable, static truth. It just, it just is, right? A story, on the other hand, while it might include some facts, is fluid. It's dynamic. It's subjective. It's interpretive. I might add, a story is human. It includes the past. It includes the present. And it, can, it includes uh, our future heading. So, uh, for an example, who can I pick on? How about Owen? I like my boy in blue up here. So let's say, for example, that Owen comes into the service late today. Owen, you are actually very punctual, and I appreciate that about you. <laughs> let's, say, let's say Owen comes in late. Service here at UBC Southland, for those of you who are late goers, starts at 1030. Uh, but let's say he comes in at 1040. And in today's world, in this beautiful building called Spurtis, more than likely there's some cameras that we could go back. Big Brother's always lurking, right? We could see some, like, timestamps or something and see if he comes in late. We could prove without a shadow of a doubt the fact is that Owen came in late. Now if I go up to Owen after the service, I'm like, Owen, why are you late, dude? He might like give me a story. Now his story might include a bunch of facts. Well, you know, like the people driving me here are really terrible drivers and they're getting stuck in I don't know what your story is. But he would then have been invited to tell me a story. Stories are an inherent part of human existence. Amen? It's how we make sense of the world, of our lived experience. But evil, evil manifests itself in its staliest, ugliest forms when we give way to confabulation, to distorted memories, and when we begin to believe that our single unexamined story the one that we've made up, or the one that we've maybe unintentionally been deceived into believing, becomes the, all, the only fact. It becomes problematic. And I think that this is part of the vision that Paul sees. It's part of the warning that he warns against us. This dragging ser- uh, serpent Satan character thrives on this form of life, creating antagonistic fighting spaces where conflating and confabulating fact and story and fact and story, not knowing what's true or untrue, this demon thrives on that. It's de-storytizing, which is therefore dehumanizing, and therefore creates no room for empathy. Empathy. Ugh. 
I had to go back this week and like do some research, like, okay, solo confession. I had to do research on the difference between empathy and sympathy because I can never keep them straight partially because I'm terrible at both of them. Um, so like, just full confession. I'm working on it. Um, grace abounds. Um, so here's, here's kind of like the research that I've come up with. Um, empathy fuels connection. It fuels connection. Sympathy tends to drive disconnection. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions where empathy is like a really important aspect of, of the field. So I think nurses, pastors, um, uh, I don't know, anything else where you need empathy. I, again, I don't do it very often, so it's like, you know, I don't know. Um, so empathy, she comes up with these four aspects. She says, one, empathy includes perspective taking. So this is the ability to take on the perspective of another person, just kind of step in their shoes and recognize that to an extent their, their perspective is their truth. She says empathy is also too, it's staying out of judgment, that judgment zone. Oh, this is a hard one, Kyle, you know. Like, no, everyone's real good at judging these days, right? Empathy three means recognizing emotion in other people, and then four, being able to communicate that emotion. And there's a big difference, I think, when somebody comes up to you and they're really distraught, and you listen to their story and you say, oh, you must be really angry. And they say, no, like, I'm actually really, really terrified and afraid right now. That is communicating an, a wrong emotion. But empathy requires communicating the right emotion. Anything looks like this, a person falls deep into a hole, right? And there's, it's deep and it's wide and they're screaming and they're like, hey, I need help getting out of here, I can't get out. The sympathetic person might walk by a couple of times and look down and say, ugh, I'm really sorry that you're down in that hole. Don't know how you got down there, that sucks for you. Uh, but maybe when I come back by, I'll throw you like some popcorn or something. The empathetic person might walk by and they're gonna jump in the hole with you. Now, if you're in a hole, you're sitting there and you're like, okay, maybe now we're both stuck in this hole. We're going to die down here. But the empathetic person might then look at you and say, you know, but I've been in a hole similar to this before, and together we can find a way out. Empathy is a choice. It's vulnerable choice because it requires that we relinquish some of our power. And perhaps let go of some of those facts that we believe deep down to be self-evident. Empathy involves listening to a person's story and not confabulating it, giving way to deception and believing something else. Empathy never begins with these words, at least. Somebody comes to you and says, you know, I have experienced systemic oppression and racism in my place of work. You don't look at them and say, well, at least you have a job. <laughs> Empathy is not trying to silver line a situation. It's not trying to make things better and just fix the problem, because that in and of itself is a form of colonialism, of mastery, of trying to manipulate and control. That is, that is grasping for something and saying, I'm in charge of this, I'm going to take the reins, and I'm going to be defensive for whatever situation comes its way. Its posture is the same posture as that antagonistic devil. And it is the same sort of deception that guides that way of being also that tricks us into believing that we have whatever it takes in the first place to fix someone else's situation. 
which is not always the case, especially when we don't do that own story examination for ourselves. Rather, our empathetic response when the person tells us their story, when a person steps into that vulnerable place and shares their true self with us, our empathetic response should look something like this. I don't really have the words to speak to your situation. I don't have the right response, but I'm so glad you told me that. It must have been really difficult for you to share. Because rarely, rarely, and I should like really pay attention to this, rarely does a response fix something. What makes things better is connection. That's why we praise God, Emmanuel, God with us. I once took a class uh, in seminary on James Cone. We read, uh, this is a, a black theologian, James Cone, and uh, my professor, a brilliant guy, once said, he was kind of like really mad because I guess a student came to him out of class and was asking for an A. And he like came into class and was like, if you want your A, I'll give you an A. And, uh, and he said, I said this, I failed you as a teacher if you leave this place with a, a bunch of ideas and concepts. Because on the other side of those ideas and concepts are people. People who are hurting and broken and dying. Empathy invites us not just to sit in someone else's story, but it invites us to connect at a deep, intimate, serious level, the same way that God seeks to connect at a deep, intimate level with us as well. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that sounds great, but that's just not my forte. I'm an introvert, and I don't like to be with people too often. But I would argue, I like to argue, and I would argue this. If you have ever shed a tear... Watching a movie or reading a book, Simon Birch is that movie for me. A parasite on me. Like, oh man, I just like boo and a big fish. Um, but if you have ever shared, shed a tear, hearing someone else's story, then you have in you what it takes to be an empathetic person. You have what it takes to hear story. But if, like me, you have not flexed those empathy muscles in a while, then consider practices that help you begin to fire those muscular synapses. A great example of this, I think, uh, what, what does this look like? A great example is Aziz Ansari. Any Netflix fans out here? Yeah? Anybody like Masters of None? Okay, cool, maybe not. If not, come talk to me after and I'll tell you all about it. <laughs> so it's been on this, uh, it's been in the two seasons now, and uh, recently, uh, Masters of None won an Emmy. Lena Waite was uh, the first black female writer to win an Emmy for writing an episode of Masters of None, uh, it's the episode called Thanksgiving. Uh, and it's based on her journey of coming out. It's a beautiful, beautiful episode. Um, and it, it's really cool. It's a cool way of telling the story too because all of you probably have like Thanksgiving traditions and this episode just kind of like shows a very intentional perspective of her and that Thanksgiving was kind of difficult throughout the years as she came out to her mom and started to bring slowly her girlfriends around and see her mom kind of come around to her sexuality. But uh, anyway, at the end, here's what she had to say. Oh, Jesus. Let me reclaim my time. Give me a second. Um, I got to thank God or else I would be standing here. I want to thank my mother for inspiring the story and allowing me to share it with the world. I love you, Ma. Um, thank you, Aziz, for pushing me to co-write this, bro. Now we're standing here. I love you forever. Thank you and Alan for creating a show like Master of None where we can tell stories like this. Thank you, Netflix and Universal, for creating a group of playground 
for us to play on and shine. Ted, Cindy, we love you. Um, Melina, you are magic. Angela, you are a legend. Kim, you are a force. Uh, thank you for this episode so special. To my girlfriend, I love you more than life itself. Alana, my team, my chosen family, I love y'all. And last but certainly not least, my LGBTQTIA family. I see each and every one of you. The things that make us different, those are our superpowers. Every day when you walk out the door, put on your imaginary cape, and go out there and conquer the world, because the world would not be as beautiful as it is if we weren't in it. And for everybody out there that showed us so much love this episode, thank you for embracing a little Indian boy from South Carolina, a little pure black girl from the south side of Chicago. We, we appreciate it more than you could ever know. Thank you, Academy, for this. She says, the things that make us different, those are our superpowers. I might add to that, the things that make us different, those are our stories. Though the award was shared between her and Aziz, it speaks volumes that Aziz kind of stood there, out of the way, and he let his friend once again share her story with the world. Uh, Pastor Emily McGinley said these, this about this scene. She said, uh, this is what solidarity and allyship look like. Giving your power over for others so that they can share their story, just as Christ gave his life for us. So what? What does all of this have to do with our series called In, Called Out, with Church Without Walls, with our anti-racism audit, with UBC, with the church? It occurs to me, uh, and this isn't definitive, but two of the worst forms of suffering a person can endure are Alzheimer's disease and amnesia. Uh, both of these diseases uh, affect your ability to put together a narrative, a stream of thought from point A to point B. For people suffering from Alzheimer's disease, like my grandmother, they have no short-term memory. So they revert entirely to their, their past. My 87, 88-year-old grandmother thinks she's 10 years old. And so she's just living in the past, and her mind cannot comprehend any point coming up like next and next. And so there's no need or desire to change. There's no concept of the future. At the same time, those suffering from amnesia have no long-term memory. They're just living in the present, in the now, perhaps forgetting all of those people and places and obstacles that have shaped their story up until that moment. I think either way, it's really hard to make sense of where you are if you have no past or no present. And I think the church, writ large, has found itself in these places at times. There are those churches stuck in the past with no desire to reflect on their own story, to consider the facts, and to step into creative new spaces, spaces that I would call holy spaces. And there are those churches who have abandoned the rich cloud of witnesses whose stories are a part of our ongoing story as the body of Christ. God made flesh, and therefore their stories shape our stories, whether they are for better or for worse. There is power in story because there is power in flesh and connection. I think this is how then we combat Satan, that antagonistic deceiver. This is how we ignore the whispers of the serpent, serpent in the garden, how we invite others to proclaim their story and therefore encourage an atmosphere of vulnerability, 
so that everyone can fully live into and embody their flesh and their worth. In a world where facts are up for dispute, I mean, come on, like, fake news is a thing, right? I love the onion, though. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's all the more crucial to practice authentic listening because it's also crucial to realize that sharing your story is scary and is frightening. You see, snakes shed their skin. But what it means for UBC to practice being an anti-racist church is to call all people and create an atmosphere where all people feel comfortable living in their skin. So what? What is our weapon of choice? It's our witness. That word has two meanings. On the one hand, to witness means to see. You know, like, for example, I witnessed a murder. But witness also means, like, to testify, to, to give an account of, to, to give a public affirmation. Another word, another way I might describe this type of witness is to tell a story. In Greek, that word witness is martyrion, where we get our word martyr from. And likely, I think these two became conflated because uh, for early Christians and still for many around the world, telling their story of their encounter with God, an empathetic God who comes down and takes on flesh to make real, lively connection with us, for many people around the world, telling their authentic story, being in those vulnerable places, costs them their lives. That's the beauty of Revelation. Personifying evil gives us the opportunity to name it, to call it out, so that we can create community where we are calling people in. We read that the slaughtered lamb conquers. It overpowers, but it does so in such a way that the entire paradigm for victory and power gets restructured. It does so by relinquishing control, releasing its grasp, and receiving a bigger story, being invited into a bigger ongoing story. One that's not just about us, but about each of us. It's a story that has been written. It's a story in which we are invited. Revelation's amassing of deception and the flattery of evil is 100% consistent with Jesus' life and ministry. Naming evil for what it is, systemic racism, internalized racial oppression, internalized racial superiority, things that you will be hearing about more in the coming weeks. Naming these things is consistent with the life and practices of Jesus, who not only rooted out evil in institutions and society, but also in persons as well. May this be your story, and may, may this be Urban Village Church's story as well.